Let's go to the book of John. John 19, verse 17 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into, into four parts, one, for, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my garments and among them, among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his, were his mother and his, her sisters, his sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that time or that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we pray that you give us ears to hear. We pray that you give us minds to understand. We pray, God, that you give us hearts to believe. Lord, give to us what we do not naturally desire. You, a desire for you and a desire, Lord, to obey your word. I decrease now that you may increase. I become less that you and you alone can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning and that your people would not hear or see me, but they would hear you and see you. Thank you, God, for the privilege of belonging to you and belonging to your church. pray all this for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ. Amen. You may be seated this morning. We come now to the third saying, most likely, the third saying of our Lord from the cross of Calvary. You may remember the the first saying of our Lord when our Lord prayed in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for his enemies in the midst of his sufferings. The Lord Jesus Christ displayed to the world the mercy of God, even when the world showed him no mercy. The second statement of our Lord was to the thief who was crucified with him on Golgotha's hill. He said in Luke 23:43 to that thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Our Lord prayed for mercy, the mercy of God upon his enemies. He declared pardon and forgiveness to a repentant sinner and promises that man life eternal in paradise. And now, in the midst of his suffering, our Lord looks out from the cross where he is suspended, nails in hands and feet, and he ministers comfort, care, and compassion to his mother. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, most most likely, this is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
Jesus' words to his mother and to John. Again, most likely, John, are the most likely, the third statement of our Lord from the cross of Calvary. At first glance, though, there is, or at least there does not appear to be, the astonishing drama of the first two statements of our Lord from the cross. The first statement again, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That strikes us as being absolutely spectacular, especially when we consider the context in which it was spoken. Our Lord has been betrayed. He has been abandoned. He has been beaten, scourged beyond recognition, forced to carry his own cross up Golgotha's hill, and there he is pinned, hands and feet, to that Roman cross. And as he is there, suspended on that cross by his hands and feet, these words of mercy are the first to leap from our Lord's lips. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what is our response to such a prayer from our Lord? Well, for those who are saved, our response is most certainly to fall face down and worship at the, the, the display of mercy from our merciful God who would pray for such sinners. The second statement of our Lord is no less dramatic. While he is on the cross, the world, as it were, is heaping insults at our Lord. The Bible says in Mark 15, 27, when they crucified him, two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also, the chief priest and scribes mocked him, saying to him, and saying to one another, He saved himself, or he, can, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those also who were crucified with him reviled him. And it is there, while our... Lord's divine glory was most veiled that God mercifully answers the prayer of his son and grants forgiveness and faith to one of the thieves who was crucified alongside him. He gives him eyes to see Christ as he truly is. And he asks our Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Out of faith, he cries out, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, his reply to him is, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In essence, he is saying, Remember you? <laughs> Remember you. I will do one step further than that. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And once again, it is great cause for us to fall on our faces in awe of the great God that we serve, for there is no one like Him. But this third statement, the third statement of our Lord, it, it at first glance seems almost, uh, almost prosaic. It almost seems to appear the lack of beauty. It almost appears to, to, to be void of the lack of wonder as the first two sayings of our Lord. Jesus looks out from the cross where he is hanging, and he looks to his mother, and he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he says to the disciple whom he loved, Behold your mother. The third saying, it appears to be less dramatic on the surface, but it is nonetheless just as revealing of the character of God as the first two statements of our Lord. What do I mean? I mean this. The true character of a true Christian, the true character of a Christian, one who has true faith, is not seen when all is well in our lives. The true character of a true Christian is not most easily seen when all is well in our lives. But the true character of Christian faith is most displayed, it is most evident when our lives are engulfed in difficulty. True Christian faith is most readily seen when our lives are enmeshed in pain and uneasiness. The true character of the Christian life is most displayed when 
when life and the taste of life is bitter. And when everything in our lives appears to be against us. And if we're honest, I think that most of our prayers are much like the psalmist in Psalm 88 when we are going through the midst of our pain. My soul is full of troubles. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remembered no more, they are cut off from your hand. And he ends that that psalm, he ends that lament by saying, My companions, and I wonder if you've ever felt this way, my companions are darkness. Have you ever felt that way? In the midst of your deepest, darkest moments, have you ever felt like the only companions in my life are are darkness? The only companions, my only friends are right now pain. And it is when we find ourselves in the midst of sore and painful providences of God that we will discover the true character of our faith. We will discover whether or not we truly do have true faith. It is when we find ourselves in the midst of difficulty that the true character of our faith will be revealed. That is why Peter prayed, or Peter said in 1 Peter 2.21, For this purpose you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Why, Peter? Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ also suffered for you. Why? So that you may follow his example. The question is, and the question we must ask then, is what example did the Lord Jesus Christ set for us to follow? What steps has our Lord laid out that we should emulate and step into? Our Lord is the perfect pattern. He is the perfect example of the man of faith. If we are talking about, we will know in the midst of trouble whether or not we have true faith, then we look to the one who is the perfect example of faith and say, what did he do when he was in the midst of his deepest, darkest hour? What then is the pattern that we are to follow? The pattern that we are to follow is manifested here at the cross. And the first point is this. The first thing that we see of our Lord is this. He exemplifies a commandment-loving, commandment-obedient life. In the midst of darkness, he exemplifies, he displays for us a commandment-loving, a commandment-obedient life. John 19, 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to to the disciple, Behold your mother. What example, then, is the perfect man of faith? What example is our Lord setting for us in the saying of these words? I wonder if you are aware of the the fifth commandment. Our Lord commands in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, here it is. You shall honor your father and your mother. The fifth commandment, you shall honor... Your father and your mother. We've asked the question before, when did the perfect obedience of Christ begin? When did the perfect obedience of Christ to his father, when did that begin? And the answer was, it began in eternity past. When God the Father and God the Son made a covenant of redemption. That the father would give to the son a bride and that the son would go and save that bride. Every moment, though, that our Lord lived in his humanity, he lived in perfect obedience to the Father. There was not one moment, not one moment, when our Lord failed to obey, to perfectly obey the commands of his Father. Though he was fully man, and though he was tempted in every way, he sinned not. Whether he was being tempted in the wilderness or whether he was hanging from a Roman cross. Our Lord never failed to perfectly obey the commands of his Father. Here in the midst of unimaginable pain, he is still obeying the commands of his Father. To the very last breath, 
our Lord is exhibiting a life that is wholly obedient, wholly loving to the commands of his Father. He is obediently setting the example that he himself commands his disciples to follow. He says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commands. But he is not commanding something that he himself is not also following. Our Lord is practicing what he preaches. He loves his Father. And because he loves his Father, he keeps his Father's commands. And what command is it that our Lord is at this present time, while he was hanging from that Roman cross, what command was he obeying? You shall honor your father and your mother. We see in Jesus, as the model servant, the perfect man of faith, that what pleased him, what gave him life, what gave him strength, was loving the commands of his Father and obeying the commands of his Father with all of his heart, even in the midst of the most intense suffering. The first and most clear point of this passage should strike us is that Christ in the most excruciating pain he is still keeping and obeying loving even the commands of his father and, and, and the, the, the words are spoken with punctuation do you see the punctuation there? it is exclaimed the first statement of our Lord from the cross it is exclaimed as if it were called out why called out? oh the pain oh the agony the intense extremities of his body were screaming out, enough maybe. A pain that you and I will never know. A pain that you and I will never understand. And yet in the midst of that intense pain, he is still perfectly obeying the commands of his Father. Amen. The commands of God are a delight to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are his meat, they are his drink. He does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Even in the midst of extreme suffering. The commands of God are the joy of His Son. The commands of the Father are a joy to the Son. They are His delight. And I can imagine maybe all of Psalm 119 is, is flying through His heart. Flying through His mind. Psalm 119.5 Oh that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. That I might, that I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on your commandments. Verse 20 My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 52 When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Verse 97 Oh how I love your law. Verse 105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Oh how our Lord loved the law of his Father, and sought to obey it even in the midst of darkness. They were his light. They were his strength. They were his delight. Now, to you, we pose a very challenging thought, a challenging question. Since this is the example that we are called to follow, is the example of Christ being displayed in your life? What is uppermost in your hearts and in your minds today? Are the commands anywhere near your delight today? Are the commands of God anywhere near your sustenance today? Are the commands of God anywhere near all that you desire, all that you need, all that you want today? Or are they only desirable when all is well? Or are they only desirable when all is not well? Are they desirable in good times, in bad times? Are they desirable in sickness and in health? Are they desirable when rich or when poor? Do you desire to obey the law of God? What is displayed in our lives? What character is displayed in our lives in the midst of suffering? What character is displayed in the midst of pain? Here. We have our Lord, abandoned, beaten, and bruised, and yet his desire is God's word and God's law. Have we abandoned the commands of God in order to satisfy our own desires? Have we forsaken our, our knowing 
of obeying the commands of God for ourselves. Are we commandment-loving, commandment-keeping Christians? And why do I ask that question? Because that is the example that Christ has set for us to follow. Let us take this even to the most obvious command. The most obvious command here in the Scriptures. And this may be difficult for some to hear. But are we honoring our fathers and our mothers? Life is busy. My life is hard. You don't know what they've done to me. Yes, I don't know. I understand life is busy. I understand life is hard. But in spite of all of those realities, and I'm not minimizing those realities, we are called to honor our fathers and our mothers. Why? Why? Why must I? What if they were not a believer? You understand that there are no caveats to that command. There are no conditions to that command of honoring your father and your mother. There are no conditions of, well, unless they're not nice to you. There are no conditions of, well, unless their minds seem to be scattered and they don't seem to make much sense when you speak to them. Unless they're not a believer, then don't honor them. No. The command from God is, honor your father and your mother. That's the command. What if they are not a believer? What if they are all of the things that I just said? The best way that you can honor them is show them compassion. Show them care. Pray for them. Show them respect when you are there with them. Honor that person who was created in the image of God, just like you are. Oh, Pastor, you don't know how stubborn my parents are. You know, I, know, I don't know how stubborn your parents are, but I know how stubborn, no, you know how stubborn you were. You know how obstinate you were before God showed you mercy. And look, God has shown you mercy. As difficult as it may be, do good to them. Honor them. Respect them. Why? Because God commanded it. Because God commanded it. And it pleases God. Here is our Lord in the utmost of pain and yet He is still caring for and honoring His mother and seeking to minister to her. He is the model example of a commandment-keeping, commandment-loving man of faith. Secondly, Christ cares, care, Christ care for family, but does not ignore, Christ cares for his family, but does not ignore the necessity of faith. Christ cares for his family, but does not ignore the necessity of faith. Verse 26, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the other disciple, Behold, or, yeah, Woman, behold your mother. Then he said to the other disciple, Behold, first person, Woman, behold your son. Other disciple, Woman, son, behold your mother. I wrote it wrong, but you got the point. What do we mean by caring for family but not ignoring the need for faith? Let me show you something in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. You may turn there if you'd like. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And here's the response of Jesus. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? What an odd statement to make. Your mother, your mom... And your brothers are standing outside, and they are waiting for you. They want to see you. And the response of Jesus is, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And who are my sisters? Looking about at the people around them, around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Why would you say something like that, Jesus? For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What an interesting statement. When the family comes to Jesus, they are apparently dismissed by Jesus as not being important at all. It almost appears as Jesus, as if Jesus treats them as second class. This is explained further, or seen further in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And if you not read Luke's account of this passage, it is strikingly different. 
Luke 14.26, listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me, and here's an amazing, striking word, and does not hate his own father, his own mother, his own wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that? His mother and brothers come to him and says, who are my mother and brothers? If anybody wants to follow me, you can't follow me if you love them more than me. No matter of fact, you must hate them. All of them, even yourself, if you are to come to me. And if you're not willing to do so, then you are unworthy of following me. Can you imagine what the reaction of the people of the day was when Jesus said such words? Much like maybe some of our reaction who first heard or when we first heard these things. That sounds strange. That sounds odd. Or maybe even further than that, this man is crazy. What then of the command to honor? It's not the command, the fifth commandment, to honor your mother and your father. And it appears as though our Lord is minimizing family ties. Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? Those who do the will of God. As a matter of fact, if you don't even hate them, then you can't follow me. But then here is our Lord. In the midst of his sufferings. And he is expressing tender care and compassion to his mother. There is no hatred there. There is absence of hatred. There is only love, it appears. So then what do we then take from the passages where it appears that Jesus is minimizing family ties? And it seems here as though Jesus is elevating family ties. Well, let's figure this out. Jesus was not saying, and Jesus did not mean that family meant nothing. And our Lord was certainly not suggesting that you should walk around hating your mother and your father. But our Lord was making a point of comparison. Our Lord is making a, a point of comparison. And what is our Lord comparing? Our Lord is comparing devotion. Listen close. Our Lord is making a comparative point of devotion. What do we mean? Who are you most devoted to? This is the point that Christ is making. Are you most devoted, devoted to God or are you most devoted to your families? It is a question you must answer yourself. Are you most devoted to God or are you most devoted to your family? Abraham was asked the same question. By way of a command, take your son, the son whom you love, and offer him to the Lord. What would you do? What would you do? Take your son, take your daughter, take your granddaughter, take your grandson. Take your wife, take your husband, take your father, take your mother. And offer him, her, to the Lord. What would you do? Abraham was faced with that decision. Who am I most devoted to? And we automatically will say, well, I'm most devoted to God. But how do you know? How do you know? What are the evidences that you are most devoted to God? How will you know? How do you know that you are most devoted to God? Whoever loves family more than God is therefore not worthy of God. Your love for God should be so great that when compared to your love for family, it appears to look like hate. That the love for God is so intense. It is so great that you are willing to do anything and everything for God. That when compared to that, to your family, that God comes first. That is, if we are most devoted to God, most obedient to God, most passionate to God, we are more committed to God than anyone else, even our mothers, our fathers, our sons, our daughters. And we must be careful not to omit this passage. We must be careful not to ignore this passage because it is so easy to, to focus on great family ties and elevate those family ties even above Christian ties. Ties that you have with one another who are sitting here that will last for eternity. 
We must be ever so careful not to elevate our family ties, to isolate ourselves only to our own little families, and not realize that your ties now run deeper than bloodlines. They run deeper than bloodlines. And it's amazing to me what so-called Christians will do because someone else goes to another church. Now I'll go to that church. But I still love God. Do you? Do you really still love God? Is that why you go to another church? Because a family member goes to another church. We're having a barbecue on Sunday. It starts at 10 o'clock. Interesting. How ironic. So does church. We're going to the beach on Sunday. Really? What time are you leaving? Uh, 8 o'clock. We'll be back at 5. Why couldn't you leave at 12 and come back at 7? Because family ties mean more. Because people are more concerned with what they do with their own little families than a connection with the church and with the family of faith. And that hurts people. What am I supposed to do? Ignore my mother? Ignore my father? Ignore my cousins? Well, maybe the best way to minister to them would be to share with them why you can't make it on a Sunday between 10 and 12 o'clock. And maybe that will be a way of sharing the gospel with them. Because don't you also want to see your family bloodlines come to Christ? How will you do that? By ignoring the most important thing that you say is in your life, Christ, on a Sunday between 10 and 12? That makes no sense to me. I will show my family how much I care about them, but ignore my God who I'm supposed to serve and worship on the Lord's day. So if the Lord's Day is the Lord's Day, then why are we giving the Lord's Day to our unsaved families? We should be ministering to them. Well, I'll go to the beach and minister to them. You're a liar. You will stuff your face with hot dogs and Lay's potato chips. But you will not, most likely, be sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you will, and I pray you do. But it is amazing to me how so much can take this short moment, which we only have 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes left of, for everything else. And we say, I am more devoted to God than I am to my family. How do you know? How do you know? Where is your allegiance? I believe the answer is found in this. Who is it that I most seek to please? Who is it that I most seek to please? I believe the answer is found in this. Who am I most concerned with honoring? I believe the answer is, is found when you answer those questions. And you must answer them by understanding that you are now in Christ. And that you've been called to obey His commands. And you've not been called to isolate yourselves to only your bloodlines. To only your family ties. That when you come to church, you only talk to your family. Praise God that they're here. But what if they leave? What will you do then? Well, I'll go with my family. Interesting. Why? How do you know? You've been elected into a broader family. It is a family of faith. You have been called not only to think about your immediate family, which we are not minimizing, but also to care for the extended family, the new family of faith that you have been called to by seeking to honor them, by seeking to do good to them. We have in Christ been united to a new and eternal family of God. Christ is the incarnation of God. He is the true reflection of who God is. There, there is no unchrist likeness in God. There is no unchrist likeness in God. Jesus Christ is the true revelation of God. So we are brought face to face with God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we see when we come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ? We see God as He truly is. We see that He is sensitive to the needs of others. And brothers and sisters, there is no excuse for a Christian not to be sensitive to the needs of others, except the sinful excuse of selfishness and self-centeredness. 
Notice that our Lord did not wait for one of his brothers. We know that our Lord had four brothers and two sisters. He did not wait for one of his brothers to show up and say, Brother, take care of our mother. But rather, he entrusts the care of his mother to John. Why not his brothers? Here's the first and most obvious point or reason. Because they weren't there. Why John the Apostle? Because his brothers, four of them, were not there. Here's the second point, because they also were not believers. They did not become believers until after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ when he appeared to them. So at that particular moment, our Lord notices that his mother, she needs care. She needs compassion. And there is only one way that that can be accomplished. And it is through his disciple. One who has been joined to him by faith. One who was not necessarily his, her son. One who was not necessarily, that is not her mother. But yet, they have been joined together how? Through faith in Christ. Our Lord is highlighting that even in his pain, spiritual bonds of God run deeper than natural bonds of bloodline. He gives to John a new mother and he gives to Mary a new son. How? Through faith. Through a common faith that they both have. They are now family. She is his mother. He is her son. By faith. It is almost as if our Lord is adopting. Adopting a new mother for John. And adopting for Mary a new son. Again, on what basis? What is their new bond? The bond would be based on a common faith and love for Christ. What is our bond? What makes you sincerely, and do you sincerely when you call me brother? Do you mean that as though I was one of your sincerely true blood brothers? Or do you say brother as way of what everyone says when they so-called are Christians? I'm very careful now, even when I'm outside in the world, not to call a person who is not a brother in Christ, brother. Because they are not my brother. But do you see me as your sincere brother? There are men and women, but more specifically men who have called me brother, who have said to my face, I will be devoted to you as I was devoted to your father. Only two months later to walk away and say, I just can't do it. That's amazing to me. Do you mean it? Do you believe it when we are united together in common faith? Do you sincerely believe that we are truly brothers in Christ? Will you care for me as you would your own brother? Would I care for you the way I would my own brother, my own sister? That is the bond that we have. Mary, at that particular moment, her brothers, her sons are not there, and Jesus knows that she needs help right there and right then. And who would care for her? It was the responsibility of the eldest to care for his mother. And who would take that responsibility? John. One by whom united himself to Christ in faith. He would take the responsibility of caring for that woman. The ties of men and women together in Christ run deeper than the ties of blood that naturally bind us together. And I wonder... If you've experienced that in your walk with Christ, that you've experienced true love from true brothers and true love from true sisters, it is best, obviously, when spiritual ties and blood ties run together. But that's not always the case, is it? We sit here this morning and we have unsaved brothers. We sit here this morning and we have unsaved sisters. But I have discovered, by the grace of God, a love from my spiritual family that I stare at this morning like that that I have never known existed outside my own bloodline. I've experienced a care and compassion and a true concern from people that I'm sitting at or staring at right now who are sitting in front of me that I've never experienced from my own true family. And I'm learning that you are my true family. I have been stabbed in the back by uncles and cousins and you name it. 
And some of you may also do the same one day. But that will not stop me from calling you brother and calling you sister. Jesus, there's a word he calls her. Do you notice that? What does he call her? He doesn't say mom, mommy, mama, whatever. I call my mom madre uh, as a joke, but I used to call my, my father padre. So I say, oh, my little madre. Uh, he calls her woman and not mother. He does not say, mother, behold, woman. That seemed odd to you, that he would not call his mother woman. Why would he address her as such? And here's why. Because our Lord is stressing to Mary that her connection with him must first and foremost be one of faith and not of blood. Her connection with her is first and foremost one of faith and not of blood. He wants her to know that he is not first her son. He is first her Lord. He is not first her son. He is first her Lord. Yes, that is his mother. Yes, that is she is his son. There's an obvious connection there. But that connection is secondary. The primary connection between Jesus and Mary is that Jesus is her Lord. And listen close. That she is a redeemed sinner. Mary is a redeemed sinner. I'll say that again for all the Roman Catholics in the room. Mary is a redeemed sinner. Who Christ ransomed with his blood. The blood that was at that moment being shed on the cross. Mary needed a savior. Mary needed a savior. Mary was just as depraved in her sinful nature as she inherited from Adam. As you and I. And she displayed that sinful nature in her own life, just as you and I. And from this moment on, her primary, her most preeminent connection with the Lord Jesus Christ would not be her blood relationship to Christ, but her primary connection would be her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation. And so it is with each one of us. Our primary connection to Christ is our faith in Christ. Our primary connection to one another is our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third and finally, the humanity and tenderness of the words of Christ. The humanity and the tenderness of, our, of the words of Christ. Verse 26, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. I would like you to think as we close how God displays himself throughout the Bible. All of scripture, God is displaying for the world who he is. More specifically for his people, he's displaying his true nature and the true character of his being. In Genesis chapters 1 through 2, in the creation of the world, we are given a glimpse into the sheer wonder and majesty of the creativity of our God. Yet in Genesis chapter 5, we are given a glimpse into the Lord's eternal hatred towards sin as he brings judgment upon the world through flood. In Exodus chapter 14, we see God, a Savior, who rescues his children, the children of Israel, from the hands of the Egyptians who pursued them by parting a sea. But then there are passages that we read and can so easily glance over, can so easily read right past, assuming that they lack any real reason or even cause us to pause for any real amazement. This passage is one of those passages. Because whether you know it or not, I know I have read through that passage and, and easily ignored the sheer wonder of the words that are spoken in light of the circumstances, beyond extreme circumstances that we find our Lord in at the cross. Who is it that needed comfort at that moment? It was one that what he was seeing before his very eyes. And I want you to think about this. The person who needed comfort was one that was staring at him on that cross. And maybe as she was staring at him on that cross, she was reminded of words that were spoken to him or to her when he was only, when he was only eight days old. As she sees him, arms stretched out on the cross, maybe she was reminded of the time when Joseph and Mary 
presented Jesus at the temple. And a man named Simeon, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, was told that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And Joseph and Mary come into the temple, and it was revealed to Simeon, this is the Christ. Simeon takes the Lord Jesus, that baby, into his arms, blesses God and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation for the Gentiles, and for your glory to the people Israel. And what joy must have filled the hearts of Mary and Joseph. They've been told themselves that Jesus would be a savior. They had men come and honor Jesus, bowing at his feet, bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But how this salvation would come to the world was still a mystery to both of them. And just as quickly as joy filled their hearts, as Simeon spoke the words to Joseph and Mary, he then turns to Mary. And says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And listen, he says to her, And a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He looks to Mary, who was filled with joy, who was filled with wonder, who has had this baby by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he says to her, and Mary's soul is going to pierce your... Oh, a sword is going to pierce your soul. What could, have, could that have meant? What could he have meant by that? And fast forward 33 years later. So for anyone who lives that amount of time. She has loved this gift. She has perfectly... He has perfectly obeyed his mother. And all that he has done. She's raised him. She's cared for him. She's watched over him. She's watched him begin his ministry. She's heard and seen the spectacular things, the magnificent things that he's said and done. And now that baby is a man. And that man is hanging from a Roman cross, cursed in the minds of all those who would see anyone hanging from a wooden cross, crucified as a criminal. And the sword that will soon pierce the side of our Lord is at that present time piercing the heart of his mother. Maybe in such a way that only a mother or father can understand. And those words that were spoken to Mary by Simeon all those years ago are now becoming a reality to that poor woman as she sees her son unrecognizable hanging from that cross. And once again... In the midst of that pain, God puts his true character on display. In one of the most subtle ways, he displays kindness and gentleness and comfort that only he alone can give. And of all the people, he's prayed for mercy for sinners. He's granted forgiveness of the thief. And now here is this poor, distraught woman whose soul is presently being wounded beyond our wildest imagination. And who is there to comfort her? The Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. The Bible says Mary is standing there. Can you imagine the strength of that woman to stand there? As her son is being pierced, hands and feet, she is standing Weeping no less, I'm sure. Wailing, I'm sure, but standing. And how is she able to stand? Because the one who is her Savior is standing before her, is, is being crucified before her, is dying for her. She is able to stand. And so it is with you. You are only able to stand because one stood in your place. He looks to this woman who is beyond and possibly on the brink of, of breaking and we are reminded that a bruised reed he will not break and a burning, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And yet in all that power, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will, listen, gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are young. Isaiah 
And these are remarkable examples of strength and power combined with tender, gentle care. It is reminiscent of our Lord saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here is the Lord of glory, tenderly inviting, tenderly inviting the weary, the worn out, sad sinners to come to Him for comfort. Are you worn out this morning? Are you weary this morning? Come to the Lord for comfort. He will give you rest. Behold your God, there is no one like Him. We must not look upon our God as the servants in the parable of the servants who say, I knew you were a hard man. We must never look at our Lord that way as if He is a a hard taskmaster. But our Lord is generous. He is compassionate. He is gentle. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of God. As I said before, there is no unchrist-likeness in God. The man, the God-man on Calvary is the God of eternity. In his thoughtful, compassionate words to his mother, our Lord says to all who have ears to hear and eyes to see, this is what God looks like. This is what God sounds like. Behold your God. Be imitators of God as beloved children of God. How will that imitation be seen in our own lives? I'd like you this week to take time, and even after this time now, I'd like you to take time to answer that. What will it mean in our lives for us to be imitators of God? What will it mean for me as a father, as a husband, as a son, and as a pastor to be an imitator of God? What will it mean for you as a wife, as a daughter, as a worker, as a church member? What will it mean for you to be an imitator of God? Let's stand and consider those things as we... Prepare to take the Lord's table.